But what kind of people does God use to accomplish His ends in the spread of the Gospel? Or is it the weak, but that seek to be faithful unto God and trust in His strength? Do you want your life to count for eternity? I mean, when you're on your deathbed in your 70s and 80s or maybe even 90s and you reflect back, do you want to be able to reflect on how God has been pleased to use you, weak as it was, to further His purposes? If you're like me, sometimes you feel like you're a spiritual failure and that somehow we, we don't measure up But Hebrews 11 reminds us that that these are people of faith that trusted in God and trusted in His promises. And God was pleased to use them. In fact, faith is an orientation towards the future which enables us and people to accomplish things in the present. Faith and trust in God and His character and His promises give fuel to the engine for today and tomorrow. The very promises of God are objectively real. And this first century church of which the writer is is writing to is facing Nero intense persecution. It's just beginning to get ramped up there in Rome. The persecution towards Christians is going to intensify. And yes, the heat's already been turned up and that's why there's a temptation to turn and go back. It's, let me just go back to the Jewish synagogue. It's so much easier there. There's no persecution there. But when you take the name of Christ and you say, my fellow Jews don't understand. They don't trust in Christ. And then you got the pagan Romans, right? That hate Christians anyway. you got enemies all around you. They were tempted to go back. They needed encouragement. They needed, they needed a, a spiritual perspective to persevere on. So let's read um, chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse 32 to the end of the chapter. Uh, But our text today is 32 to 35a, and I'll explain more about that in a moment. What more shall we say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, and yes, also chains and imprisonment. And they were stoned, and they were sawn in two, and they were tempted, and they were put to death by the sword. And they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated, men of whom the world is not worthy wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. All these, and all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and 
We thank you even for this chapter of which we've enjoyed many months in. Really an Old Testament survey, as it were. And even today, we'll survey several books of the Old Testament. And so, Lord, we, we confess we need your help. We need your assistance to stay focused. And Lord, we want to be reminded of the type of people that you use. And so, Lord, we ask your blessing now in Christ's name. Amen. So I've entitled the message, The Conquest of Faith, and I'm sorry there's no outline today. I ran out of energy last evening, um, but it's a very simple two-point sermon, and I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. The writer has a clear agenda. He wants his congregation to live by faith and to not shrink back in fear. He, he wants them to press on and to not, um, not to fall away. And remember last time, we looked at just verse 30 and 31, and we had Joshua right there. Joshua, 40 years had passed since the Red Sea. There's no mention of the 40 years of wanderings, right? But then Joshua is there, and and what happens? Jericho is a symbol of Canaan's invincible might. They've just entered a promised land, but then there's this Jericho. And then this battle plan, right? You remember the battle plan? Circle the city once. For six days, and on the seventh day, circle it seven times, and then do what? Break out the tanks, you know, and all of that? No. Blow trumpets and shout, and the walls came down. A message to the hearers. Why does he include this? God is faithful to his promises. He told Joshua that indeed those walls would come down if you follow this prescribed plan. And so the encouragement for the hearers. And then... Verse 31, the Hall of Faith includes, of course, it ends with the, the people that are, that are named there uh, from beginning from Abel all the way to Rahab, the prostitute, a most unlikely convert. But her testimony and faith in Joshua 2 is something wonderful, and it was a reminder for us that God saves the worst of sinners. The Bible goes out of its way every time it mentions her to remind us that she was a prostitute, Right? Rahab the prostitute, even James lists her, but yet she is grafted in with the very people of God. She's included even in the genealogy of Christ. And remember, we talked about the differences between Joshua and Rahab. I mean, one's a mighty warrior, one's a man, one's a Jew, Moses' right-hand man, actually going into the presence of God with Moses, and Rahab the prostitute, she's a foreigner, She's a prostitute, and, and she's a woman. But what unites them is that they had a common faith in the Lord and believed in His promises. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, begins it this way uh, as we come to this section. This chapter was composed by the preacher-writer with the hope of stealing the tiny expatriate Hebrew church against the persecution that was mounting against them and was soon to fall on the genocidal waves of horror orchestrated by the mad emperor Nero. And indeed, those who did persevere did so because of their profound faith in the promises of God's word. So we must understand that Hebrews 11 is not just an entertaining and inspiring aside, but was essential life and death teaching for this Hebrew church. 
In other words, it's not just a, a collection of Old Testament stories, but this is the very fuel for them. And brothers, for us too, look at our recent history, just in the last couple of years, in the midst of COVID, in the midst of tyranny that we've seen, that we've never seen in our lifetimes to this degree in this particular country. It's a reminder to us that no dictatorship or democracy is eternal. The recent events of what we've seen has taught us that freedom, and especially religious freedom, is very fragile. Right? It's very fragile. In reality, the dark forces are at work in our culture to the extent that it has become politically correct to call everything that is evil good and everything that is good evil. Are we to be hopeless? Not at all. The church lives in a dynamic conviction that comes from believing God's Word and it can have a profound effect on our culture as salt and light to our culture. So the church that is sure of God, sure of His Word, indeed will foster great hope. A church that knows that there's only one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that He indeed is Lord. He is our great high priest. He loves His people. And so we are to be encouraged. These examples of how God's worked should fuel the church of Christ to move forward no matter what wickedness and tyranny we have around us. Very quick um, comment about the structure and then we'll jump in. Uh, verses 32 to 39 really form one unit. But there's two parts to this unit, and it's important to understand them as parts that go together. Today's text, 32 to 35a, is the triumphant heroes, as it were, you might think of, right? But next time, it will be the suffering heroes, right? I mean, did you catch some of that when I read it? being sawn in two, put to death by the sword. And so, both of those go hand in hand. Triumphant, but with through suffering. And so, today we'll look at this first part. You'll get a very incomplete picture if you leave today that I'm guaranteed tri the triumph and all that I put my hand to, and I'll never suffer. That's because you're not looking at the rest of the text, which will be next week that these, this comes through suffering. So it's very important that we have that. First point, verse 32. Faith enables flawed people to accomplish great things for God. Faith enables flawed people to accomplish great things for God. Look at the text there. He says, and, and what more shall I say? What, what is that called? It's a rhetorical question. What more shall I say? He says, time will fail me. Why? Because he's given so many Old Testament examples already, but he's only gotten through six books of the Bible. And he said, if I keep going at this rate, I'm going to run out of parchment paper, you know? And so time will fail me. And so he begins to summarize, as it were. He, he knows that his Jewish Christian hearers know their Old Testaments. He doesn't have to elaborate like I will have to do today on some of these. He wants to encourage them. And so 
He's running out of time, and, and, and he realizes he doesn't want to be a long-winded preacher, right? And so he begins to, as it were, summarize, and, and it, it's a representative rapid-fire, certain judges in the book of Judges, then the hinge of Samuel, who was the last judge, into the kings, King David, right? Who's the first righteous king before the lineage. And so he, he summarizes that, and then he just he doesn't even name names, and he he just gives the rest. And so let's um, take a look at these. And he begins with a time of Israel's darkest days. Remember the book of Judges when everybody did what? What was right in his own eyes. So the first one he lists, by the way, these are not even in chronological order. Some have said that they're Three pairs, and the first and third and fifth name are the prominent names, and then the, the second, fourth, and sixth, if we go with that, we're just going to go through them. Gideon's faith. Now, let's turn back to the book of Judges. If you got my email, uh, I usually encourage you to read a passage to prepare, and I don't know if you were able to read the whole book of Judges, but I should have gave you more fair warning earlier in the week, but we will be looking at some very just brief and key verses here, and this is good for us, right? So Gideon, and notice that, that each, all four of these, there's different oppressors on Israel during each of these times. And with Gideon, it was the, what? Midianites. It says in verse 1 of chapter 6, the son of, sons of Israel did what was evil on the side of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. Now, if you don't know the book of Judges, the book of Judges is a cycle. There's multitude of cycles, right? There's a repeated pattern. The people of God rebel. God says, okay, your enemies are going to oppress you. And then finally, they're like, Lord, please deliver us. And he raises up a judge to deliver. And the cycle just continues again and again. It might do well for a while. Even it's, you know, put away their idols in the closet, but they're right there. I'm going to go get them when I, when I want to. And so this cycle is what's happening. So here, it's the Midianites, okay? Down in verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. So the Midianites, what they would do is at harvest time, they would come down like locusts and strip the land and take the food for themselves. And so, where do we find Gideon? He's in a, where, when you thresh wheat, normally it's where? On a hilltop where there's a breeze, right? You're threshing it and the, the shaft is blown away and the grain. But he's hiding in a, a, a wine press, it says. He was beating out wheat in the wine press in order to save it from the Midianites. So he's hiding. I want the Midianites to see me. And then this angel says, Oh, valiant warrior! Me? Are <laughs> you? Who else is here? You know, and so that's kind of the, the idea here. Gideon, by faith, de defeated the Midianite army. You know the story. He's got 32,000 men, and the Lord says, too much. So what does Gideon say? If you're fearful, go home. How many leave? 10,000. Now we're down to 22,000. Lord says, way too, too much. Sends him down to the water. If one drinks this way or one drinks that way, kneeling down and lapping up the water like that, those are your guys. And it was down to 300 soldiers up against 120,000 Midianites. 
Look at those odds. What is that? 40? It's 40 Midianites for one, if I'm doing the math right. Maybe even 400. But uh, And then, these 300, they've got the most sophisticated nuclear weapons out there, right? No. They've got trumpets and empty pitchers and torches, right? I mean, now, why does God do this? So that he gets the glory, right? And so Gideon's feet, he defeats that army. I think it's 120,000 out of 130,000 uh, that were killed by the sword of Gideon's men. Secondly, you got Barak's faith. Back here, just turn back a couple of chapters. I thought maybe that passage wasn't as familiar, and so um, I had uh, Judges 4 read. So, Deborah is a woman, obviously. Uh, Barak is this military leader, and he's already been told, I'm going to give the, your enemies uh, into, this is the Canaanites, by the way, into their hand, into your hand. And look back at chapter 4 and verse 3. Here it is again, uh, that cycle. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. And so Sisera and the Canaanites oppress Israel for 20 years. And so Deborah, who's a prophetess, and this word comes, Deborah finally goes to Barak in verse 14 in chapter 4. Arise, for this is the day which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. And so he went down in verse 16, but Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herzerath and Hagayan, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left, but Sisera fled away on foot. So here's the, the military leader, right? He gets away on foot. He, where does he end up? He ends up at the tent of Jael, Haber's wife, and he, he's exhausted. Hide me in here. If you see any men come, don't say I'm in here. He's exhausted. Give me some milk. Give me a water. And she gives him milk and tucks him in. And what does she do, guys? This is great Sunday school material, you kids. All right, she pulls out the tent mallet. <laughs> <laughs> the tent mallet and what doesn't just hit him on the head but takes a, a tent peg now these must have been pretty long pegs to go from one temple all the way to the other because it's she literally nailed him to the floor amazing well next we have samson that's chapter 17 or 13 to 17 of judges we would hardly think that Samson would be a hero. Oh, he's, he's done heroic acts. But come on, this guy was led by his senses, wasn't he? He was led by his senses, largely. He defeated the Philistines, Philistines several times. In 1419, he kills 30 to get those 30 sets of clothes. Um, we don't have time to read these at, at length. Remember then, he, he catches 300 foxes torches their tails, and let them go in the crops of the Philistines. And the Philistines are furiously angry at this. Then he goes against an army of 1,000. One man, one man goes up against that army of 1,000 with what as a weapon? The jawbone of a donkey. 
and slaughters them. Well, the whole situation with Delilah, he shouldn't have intermarried. He tells dad, you know, when he's young, I spied with my eye a a beautiful woman. And you can almost hear dad say, but we're not supposed to intermarry, son. You need to stick with our own people. But he goes, I want her. Go get her for my wife. And of course, Delilah um, tricks him, dupes him, and he is seized by the Philistines. His eyes are gouged out. And once blinded, he regained his spiritual perspective. In a great act of faith, he prays at the end of his life and receives strength to avenge himself. Lord, let me push these two pillars out. And the whole building collapsed. And it says 3,000 Philistines died. And of course, he did as well. Charles Spurgeon said this on Samson. There are some names in this chapter that we should hardly have expected to be here. The characters mentioned having been so disfigured by serious faults and flaws and failings. But the distinguishing feature of faith was that in every instance, especially in the case of Samson, perhaps there was a a no more childlike faith in any man than there was in him. Who but a man full of faith would have hurled himself upon a thousand men with no weapon but a jawbone of a donkey? There was a wondrous confidence in God in that weak, strong man, weak, strong man, I like that, which, though it does not excuse his faults, yet nevertheless puts him in the ranks of all believers. Happy is the man or woman who believes in his God. Well, and then in Judges chapter 11, you have Jephthah. It says that he's a, a valiant warrior. We not imagine to see him there. And of course, here now this time, it's the Ammonites, right, that are the oppressors. So you've got, so the Ammonites are the, the ones. And so look at 1130. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, if you will indeed give the sons of Amnon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Amnon, it shall be the Lord's. I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now, that's a noble vow. Maybe he had some rats in his house that he was hoping when he came back that rat would finally come out. He could offer that up or a a pesky pet of some sort. But what a foolish vow. You know the story, I think, right? What happens? He comes back, verse 34 When Jephthah came to his house at Mitzvah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and dancing. Now she was the one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. You make a foolish vow. Lord, if you'll give me the victory, the first thing that comes out of my house, I will offer unto you. Do you believe God can use the weakness of the world to turn the world upside down. Look at the 12 apostles. Read the book of Acts. I mean, God can use weak people to advance His call. The missionary Hudson Taylor says this, All God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on their God to be with them and to empower them. heard a story of an ancient captain that was always on the front lines of the battle. And his sword became well known because they would run to another part of the line because 
His sword killed so many. And eventually, his own king wanted to examine that sword, and so it was sent to him. And the king examined it thoroughly, but then he sent it back and said, there's nothing extraordinary about it. Well, the captain, having received his sword, sent a message back to the king, yes, you only saw the sword. You did not see the arm of the man wielding it and the heart that's behind it. God can use the weakness of man. Not only did these believe the promises of God, but also in the, the sovereign ability of God to come upon them. Now, three of the four that we've covered so far, it actually says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon them. So the Bible clearly gives clear evidence of their faith. They're not necessarily perfect Sunday school models to tell our children, but they are included in the hall of faith here. And then David, uh, we're all familiar with David, many acts of faith, even Samuel when he sent to anoint after Saul's removed, he goes to the house of Jesse, big boy, big boy, big boy, big boy, and God's telling him, nope, none of these. Are, do you have any other sensible? Holy David, who's in the fields. I mean, he's just a scrawny teenager. Bring him. That's the one. And so he's anointed king. And of course, he's um, many things that he's done. He, as a young man, he killed a lion and a bear, which threatened the sheep. He was a faithful shepherd in his, the work that he, he was called to do. But then he faced the Philistine champion, Goliath. And he's quoted as saying this in 1 Samuel 17, 47, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. The rest is history. Of course, Samuel, he lived a life of faith from a young age. Remember in uh, chapter 2 and verse 18 of 1 Samuel, now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. He was the last of the judges, as I had said earlier, and he fearlessly delivered the word of God at any time to refute the sinning king Saul. In 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel says this, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as, is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is an iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. That's Samuel shutting down Saul at that point. So, we've seen God use his flawed people. Now let's look at some of these feats that they do. Our second point, the performance in the conquest. What the author does here is we turn back now to Hebrews. What the author does here is he's got nine sharp clauses that he used with great rhetorical force. It's like a sledgehammer uh, style that he's slamming these things out. Just short, pithy phrases that are packed with meaning. And it's easiest, I think, to, to put these into three triads. And so we're just going to walk through these. First of all, conquered kingdoms. Who is he referring to there? Well, everybody he just listed, right? 
You've got, you know, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David. Um, they conquered kingdoms. They extended the boundaries. Not necessarily by military might. Remember the trumpets and the pitchers and the torches. And, and that way God gets the glory. It's by God's power. Secondly, acts of righteousness or administered justice. Um, the Greek words could be um, translated. The NIS, of course, has performed acts of righteousness. And, um, and so this has the idea, I think a dual meaning really, of living a holy and righteous life, conducting yourself properly, right? As well as administering justice through godly kings and civil law. Second Samuel chapter 8 says, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all the people. There he is. He's administering justice. He's administering righteousness. Application for us. How does a good government relate to faith? They uphold God's standards and God's laws. But what do we see in our government? Injustice. It's only when a leader trusts and fears the Lord that he's a just leader before a holy God. And it's a reminder that we need to be praying for our leaders. Some of us maybe have given up on praying for our leaders because we might say, what's the point? But no, we need to be praying God's power can break them down and change their hearts just like he has with us. A.W. Pink says this on this phrase, performing acts of righteousness. It reminds us that right actions must spring from right principles and must be performed for the right ends if they are to be acceptable to God. In other words, they must issue from a living faith and have in view the very glory of God. And he says here, they obtained promises. Well, the writer, just back in chapter 6, we, we just had that read for us, says there, and so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Speaking of Abraham, and so many other examples could be given. The Old Testament saints obtained the promise that was given to them for Gideon, the deliverance of the Midianites, etc. With all of those, they obtained the promise, Joshua, that the walls of Jericho actually fell down. God said, you do this, you will win the victory. They obtained the promises. And then even that, the greatest promise of all, the Davidic covenant that came in 2 Samuel 7, that promised that the coming of Messiah was coming. And we inherit that promise as those in the new covenant. Joshua says on his deathbed, he says, now behold, today I am going the way of the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke to you concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you, and not one of them has failed. What is he doing? He's reminding them that you've obtained the promises. Not one word that God has said has failed at all. Obtaining the promises, securing the blessings that are promised. And then we see here, shut the mouths of lions. What do you think of there? Obviously, right? Daniel 6, right? You think of, you think of Daniel and the lion's den. 
because he did not obey the pagan order not to pray to his God. It says in Daniel 6, then the king arose at dawn after he's been thrown in, anxiously up all night, runs down, went in haste to the lion's den, and when he had come nearer to the den, to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice, and the king spoke and said to him, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel to shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, insomuch as I was found innocent before him. You know the rest of the story. The king says, get Daniel out of there. And all those wicked men that accused him, throw them in there, their families, their children. And guess what? The lions were pretty hungry by then after having their mouths closed all night. No one survived that. But Daniel's not the only one, right? David killed a lion, right? So did uh, Samson. You see that in Judges 14. So even Paul, it says, was rescued out of the, the mouth of the, or out of the lion's mouth. And Peter can tell us, be of sober spirit, your adversary. The devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Perhaps while the writer's reflecting on Daniel in the lion's den, he remembers Daniel's friends from a few chapters earlier. And what does he say? Quenches the power of fire. Meshach. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the obvious examples here from Daniel chapter 3. They're thrown into the fire. Nebuchadnezzar is furious, heats up the furnace seven times. They're thrown in there. And he says, how many did we put in there? Three, and there's a fourth, like the Son of Man, that is there with them. The faithfulness of God through fire. Psalm 66, 12. You made men ride over the heads, and we went through fire and through water, yet you brought us out into the place of abundance. Of course, Paul uses this metaphorical example in Ephesians 6, the spiritual armor taking up the shield of faith that you might be able to do what? Extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. God has promised that when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, They will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. We love this hymn, How Firm a Foundation. And the last verse, or second to last, when through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. Then he says, escaped the edge of the sword. Actually, in the Greek, it's actually the mouth of the sword, um, ironically here. But you can think of many examples. David up against Saul. David up against Goliath. You think of Elijah with uh, wicked Jezebel and Elisha from the king. Jeremiah with Jehoiakim. I mean, several examples. They these examples of faith, they escaped the edge of the sword. And then it says that in verse 34, from weakness they were made strong. Think of that. That's a paradox, really, in the Christian life that 
God is pleased to use the weakness and to make us strong. You think of that blind and bound uh, Samson who's there and he prays. He's, he's weakened, but, but he prays and he's be, he becomes strong and is able to take down those pillars. Think of Esther as she approached the king on behalf of the Jews and comes to the king and realizes her head could be taken off. And then became mighty in war. God is the one that makes us mighty. The, the grammar is such to where it's we don't make ourselves mighty. It's God that makes us mighty. And that's a beautiful thing. You, you think of this power. This is God's power. Last week, you guys heard a sermon from Brother Aaron that talked about the power of the Gospel. If you were here, at this, this power, it comes from God. The very power of God on display through weak servants. Psalm 18, He trains my hands for battles so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. And then the last one here, He puts foreign armies to flight. Again, Joshua, David, Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, Hezekiah, and many others here. In verse 35, women receive back their dead by resurrection. And that's where it actually, that would have been the good place to end verse 34 uh, for the reasons that I've already mentioned. But um, in that now it shifts to those that are suffering. Well, what, who is this speaking of? Right? The obvious examples. Elijah stretches out over the son of the widow of Zarephath. Remember, he, he goes, well, it's hard not to give more context to this, but you know, he goes there, she's, she's got just a little bit of grain left and a little bit of oil, and he says, make me some bread. And so that very last bit, and she does. And her son dies, and, and Elijah, as it were, um, was the instrument to receive back that strength. And that, that widow in 1 Kings 17.24 makes this profession now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is indeed true. Beautiful profession of faith. We're going to hear two professions of faith in just a little bit. You hear the testimony of how God has worked and how God has saved and two people. The other example, of, of course, is Elisha, and that's from 2 Kings chapter 4. Can I ask somebody to close that door, please? Thank you. Well, let's think of a couple of just applications for us, shall we? First of all, maybe you question the fact that God can use you. Maybe you see that there's enough sin left in your life that you question, can God really use me? Maybe you're so keenly aware of your own faults and your own weaknesses and your own Little faith that you question, can God really use me? Brethren, I'll remind you, God is pleased to use flawed, weak men and women. God is pleased to use it. Why? Because He gets the greater glory, right? God is pleased to use weak people like you and I. We went through that list of six names. Gideon. Well, Gideon... Remember, was fearful. He doubted. Already told. He's a valiant warrior. He's going to get the victory. I just got to be sure. Put a fleece out and a fleece and all of this, right? Barak would not move forward unless 
the female, Deborah, prodded him to get a move on. Samson, uh, with his weakness, uh, you know, his Philistine wife, he was gullible. Uh, Jephthah makes that foolish vow. David is guilty of, of course, adultery and murder, which we, we keenly are aware of. Samuel was actually a poor parent. It says that his sons were not walking with the Lord, and so he failed in parenting. And yet, they accomplished great things for God and are included in the hall of faith. You see, God's grace is greater than their sin. The New Testament focuses on their faith, not their failures. Isn't that a wonderful thing? We have these promises, Psalm 103, He has not dealt with us according to our sins. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. The promise of the new covenant, which we saw in Jeremiah 31, but in Hebrews 8 some time ago, says, and I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. What a glorious New Testament promise, New Covenant promise that we have. True faith is rare and should be magnified. That's what the writer's doing here. He's magnifying the faith that they had in their God. We are inclined to focus on, for example, David's adultery or Samson's weaknesses, but God commends their faith. And shouldn't we as well? Are you thankful that God uses flawed people like us? We we're certainly ashamed of our sins of our past. And it sometimes can trip us up and hinder us from moving forward because we're so much looking in the past at what we once were rather than what we're becoming and what we are yet to become for Him. We need not to be hindered with that. If everything's been confessed and repented of and all of that, leave the things behind that are behind. We can be discouraged by our ongoing struggles and and maybe even habitual sins. I'm keenly aware of my own inadequacies. Sometimes I feel like in my preaching I can bring more confusion than clarity. Or in a counseling situation that my tongue is suddenly tied and I'm not sure of what the right thing to say. God, can you really use me? He's pleased to use our weakness. I look at my own sin. I can be given to selfishness and pride. And, and begin to wonder, how can God use me? But He does. And you too are faced with those questions because you know yourself better than anyone else except for the Lord. You know your own weaknesses too. But the key is to be faithful and to continue serving God in the joy of the Holy Spirit, relying on His strength, realizing that He is pleased to use wretches who humbly depend upon Him and acknowledge their need, their great need. He's pleased to use those to further His kingdom and accomplish His purposes. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to do that. And lastly, only Christ has perfectly measures up to God's standard of holiness. Jesus alone did what? Conquered His enemies, right? We're talking about Gideon and all these judges conquering their enemies. Jesus did. He's the one that establishes government on righteousness, right? Isaiah chapter 9. He's fulfilled all of God's promises. Not only has He obtained the promise, he, He really is the promise for those of us that are in Christ. 
He's overcome death by His resurrection. He is the only Savior in this world. So I ask you today, if you don't know Him, have you trusted Him? Why would you not trust in Jesus Christ? He is the only way of salvation. And the Bible is clear. You must repent and believe and you shall be saved. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank You for this little section of Hebrews of which is um, so dense. Just these couple of verses covering so many books of the Bible. Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and more. Lord, we pray that You would indeed remind us that as we humbly walk before our God, depending on Your strength, Lord, that You are pleased to use us. May we step out in faith to believe that. And Lord, even for next week as we are reminded of the reality of suffering in the Christian life, we pray that You'd prepare us for that, that we would have a balanced picture. Oh Lord, we thank You for this time in Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.